again, welcome to Indian Creek Baptist Church. We're so glad you could join us today. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is James Veers. Uh, I've been pastor now for about eight, nine months. Um, we started the church in December and uh, started having full services in May. Um, for the last several weeks, we've been going through the book of Esther in our series called Lessons in Obedience. Uh, we started in the book of Jonah and looked at Jonah's life, and then we went through the book of Ruth and looked at Ruth's life, uh, comparing them to each other and comparing them to the obedience and a walk with Christ. And uh, today, we're going to be in Esther chapter 3. Uh, the book of Esther is unique in that God is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. Uh, there are just a very vague reference into the fact that the Jews seek to fast as Haman lays out his plan, uh, and fasting always included a time of prayer to God, but otherwise God is not uh, mentioned. Esther also takes place during uh, the period between when Ezra was allowed to go back to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild the temple, and Nehemiah was allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, so this is a time where the Gentiles that have taken captive Israel have uh, shown them favor and allowed them to go back, but Esther and Mordecai, as Esther has been made queen, have stayed in Shushan the palace. They have chosen uh, to not return to Jerusalem, and we've looked at that, uh, a few of those things, as we've looked at the beginning chapters of Esther. But last week, uh, Esther was made queen, Mordecai overheard a plot to kill the king, and uh, told Esther, Esther certified the king in Mordecai's name, the plot was found out, and the king's life was changed, or was saved. And now uh, the Bible records for us that Mordecai's name was written in the history books of the kings, but life has returned to normal. Uh, but this week we are going to, as we start chapter 3, going to be introduced to Haman, uh, another man that's going to play a very important role through the book of Esther. And... Uh, he is a very important person in the kingdom. Um, not only is he important as he's been elevated to a high level in the kingdom, but he's also important in his own head. Uh, and this is the first time that we will actually see Mordecai claim his nationality as a Jew. And we're going to look at that kind of heavily today too. So if you have your Bibles, Esther chapter 3 and verse number 1 is where we're going to start. The Bible says, After these things did a king Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advance him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants which were in the king's gate said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matter would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath, and he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Let's pray. Father God, again, we come to you this morning and humbly seek your face. Lord, I pray that you would share your truth with us, that it would not be my words, but your words. 
Lord, that your Bible would speak to us. This letter that you've left for us all these years, preserved for us, would enter our hearts and it would change us. It would take root and grow and mold us and shape us into the men and women that you would have us to be. Lord, men and women that would serve you and love you because of what you've done for us. So God, please work in us today. Help us to see these truths and help us to root them out of our lives. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we've seen, King Ahasuerus is now, uh, his life has been spared and he is going to promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advance him above all the princes. Now, God uses used very few words to tell us everything he ever wanted us to know. They're all contained right here in this book. There's a principle as we study the Bible um, that is the principle of the measured word. And we understand that if God repeats himself, it's that much more important. But also we understand that when God names something in particular, that there's a reason for it. And I don't know how many times I have read through the book of Esther and I've skipped over the fact that Haman is the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. It's never registered to me. Until I began studying for this message and I understood that uh, the Agagites were descendants of Agag. Agag is the king of the Amalekites. And if, as we've been going through the book of Judges, we've seen the Amalekites have been a thorn in the side of Israel. This is going to explain to us, I think, a little bit better the character of Haman, and why he is going to such extreme measures to destroy all the Jews instead of just destroying Mordecai. In the position that Haman was in, it would have been very easy for him to just make something up to have Mordecai killed because Mordecai was not showing him the reverence that he need, that the king had required. Just that fact would have been very easy for Haman to go ahead and have Mordecai killed and never have thought anything else about it, never have come up against anything, yet he went above and beyond to seek to destroy all of the Jews. So God has put in here that his lineage, and his lineage is that he's the son of Hamadatha, who is of the Agagites, the descendants of Agag, the name given to the kings of the Amalekites. We find in Judges chapter 7 and verse number 12 a mention of them. Judges chapter 7 and verse number 12. As we've just, uh, we're in Judges chapter 9, we've just seen Gideon passing away and and, uh, Israel going back to serve Baal. But in Judges chapter 7 and verse number 12, the Bible says, And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude, and their camels were without number as the sand of the sea, as the sand of the seaside for multitude. And when Gideon was come before come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow. And he continues to lay out the dream, but we understand that the Midianites and the Amalekites were fighting against Israel. They were destroying all of Israel's crops. At this time, when Gideon was was beginning to rise up as a judge in Israel, they had been tormenting Israel for seven years. But it goes much farther back than that. To truly understand this, we need to go back all the way to the beginning. And that's in Genesis 36. <clears throat> Genesis 36... 
and verse number 9. Genesis 36 and verse number 9. says, And these are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. Now Esau is Jacob's brother. Remember the story is Isaac... Uh, was getting being blessed with a son that it was twins. And we have Esau and Jacob. And Jacob grabbed Esau's heel. He was the supplanter. Then as we've gone on, Jacob and Esau have grown and Esau comes from the field and, and Jacob has made his pottage and, and Esau is hungry and weary and he uh, Jacob steals the, the birthright. Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of beans. And then as they grow older and Isaac is beginning, getting ready to die and he's going to bless, we know that uh, Jacob's mother convinces Jacob to put on, uh, to go kill the, the sheep, the kid of the goats, and to put the hair on his arms and on the back of his neck to fool his father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. And we know that Esau hated Jacob and, Jacob, and Esau was going to kill Jacob, so Jacob fled to Laban. So here in Genesis chapter 36 and verse number 9, it gives us the generations of Esau. Again, Esau, this people that hated Jacob, that hated the beginnings of Israel. Pick up in verse number 10. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Reel, the son of Bashemeth, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, and Gadam, and Kenaz. And Teman was concubine to Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bare to Eliphaz Amalek. These were the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. So here is where we see the beginnings of the tribe of Amalek, the beginnings of the Amalekites. He is the grandson of Esau. He is a man that, <clears throat> they are a tribe that has historically hated Israel and everything that Israel stood for. They went against uh, I. Esau went against Isaac. He saw that, that Isaac had sent Jacob away to take a wife from his own people, and Esau went to the people of the land. And Esau has always been a picture of the flesh, and the flesh warring against Israel. Though Jacob and Esau were able to put their differences aside and leave each other alone eventually, that wasn't the case for Amalek. We jump ahead to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 and verse number 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek tomorrow. I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said unto him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy and they took a stone and put, him, put under him. And he sat thereon and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side, the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah 
<clears throat> sorry, Jehovah Nissi. For he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amalek hated Israel. They hated God. They're fighting here as Israel has come out of Egypt. They're seeking to enter into the promised land. They're trying to live a life for God. Even as, as many issues as Israel had through all of this. But even God prophesied, or God said that he would destroy them. As we continue on, we know in the book of Numbers, we see them again in Numbers 24, uh, Balaam. Balaam is famous for his talking donkey. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, nobody uh, in the recent history in Hollywood has come up with anything new. And the idea for uh, Shrek and donkey is because of Balaam. Remember the story, Balaam is, uh, was being hired by Balak to curse Israel. Balaam was a prophet of God and Balaam is traveling with Balak to go and curse Israel and the donkey sees the angel of God in the way and uh, moves out of the way and slams his foot and, and Balaam ends up beating the donkey and God opens the donkey's mouth and the donkey talks. This is why we understand who Balaam is, but in Numbers 24, verses 15 through 25, Balaam prophesies against Amalek and, and, and tells uh, Balak that God is going to completely destroy Amalek. We continue on into 1 Samuel after the book of Judges where Gideon had destroyed the Midianite army and, and the Amalekites had pushed them out of the land. But now in 1 Samuel, as Saul has been made king over Israel, Saul again is going to have to fight the Amalekites. And it's this time, where this point where we begin to see Saul sliding. Uh, at, to, up to this point, he had been a, an upright king serving God but it's here that God had told Saul as he fights against Amalek that they are to take none of the spoil. They're not to take the cattle. They're to kill everything. They're to, to destroy everything. And yet Saul allows the people to take the cattle and the sheep and, and to keep them as a spoil. And Saul is, because of this, uh, Samuel prophesies against Saul and Saul is going to remove, be removed from the kingdom and David is going to be anointed as the next king. And we know that that's going to take a long time for David to take over from Saul, but we understand that this is a snare to Saul. Samuel himself uh, did what Saul could not do and that he destroyed, he actually took the sword and hewed Agag in pieces, uh, the king that is that Haman's people are named after. This is the lineage of Haman. This is why Haman is so extreme in this point. Another thing that we need to understand for Haman is we're not told anything of his life other than the fact that he was uh, his lineage and that he was put into a position of power. He was elevated above all the princes. This means that uh, he is not a Persian. He's not a Median. Uh, he was taken captive just as Israel was. And this is important because this shows the difference in Haman and Mordecai, or even we can go all the way back to Daniel because this captivity began in the book of Daniel when uh, Nebuchadnezzar took Israel captive. Daniel and... and uh, Mishael and Azariah and um, it, 
they are Daniel is always known as Daniel throughout the book of Daniel, but uh, the other his three friends are their names are changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, but those four men purposed in their own hearts that they would not defile themselves with the king's meat, and they were promoted uh, because God was with them and God was in their lives. But we understand that, that this is not the case of Haman. We're not told this story. For Haman to be put in this position, it shows us that he, uh, that one of two things had to happen. One, either God had put him there uh, by working in his life and giving him favor among those around him, or he had to completely sell out. He had to give himself over to the ideals of his captors and, and relinquish everything that he had known. And we know that Haman is going to want to destroy the people of God, so there's no way that God put him there. So it had to be that Haman had given himself over completely to everything that the world had had for him, to every whim of the king that he was willing to do anything and everything that the king wanted him to do, no matter what it meant for his ancestors and for his people. We also know that as we've studied through uh, just in the last few verses of last week, we know that any disloyalty to the king is punishable by death. And it's often done swiftly. We saw last week is that the two chamberlains had plotted against the king and they, when it was found out, they were hung on a tree. We know that in, the, in Esther chapter 1 that Vashti the queen had disobeyed a simple command to come and present herself and she was removed from queen. This is what made the way for Esther to, be, to come in. Something else that we need to understand about uh, Haman's character though is that he loves to be number one. This is why it's so hard for him when Mordecai won't bow to him. Uh, we see him in a complete lack of moderation. And we're going to see in the next few chapters his uh, personality and his ego get in the way as uh, the king is going to call him in and ask what should be done for, for the man that the king delighteth to honor. And Haman's first thought is, who does the king want to honor more than me? His pride and his ego get in the way. And his pride and his ego are going to be his downfall. But we are introduced to Haman, but now we are going to be introduced to the plot. Much like Bigthan and Tirish from last week, Haman is angered by someone, something that is perceived as, as an injustice. Not an injustice to the whole of humanity or someone else, but one to him personally. How often do we look at a situation and see a personal slight when none really exists? Or maybe a, a valid reason exists for that slight. From the perspective of, of Haman, I think of the mandate uh, in all the branches of the military that you should salute a superior officer. While this shows respect and obedience, it can also be very difficult to abide at times. What about those times when uh, you as a, an enlisted man are, are carrying, you're, you're, you've got... I mean, Brother Grant, you were in the Navy. Uh, what would have happened if you didn't salute an officer as they walked by you? Well, it happened to me one time. Oh, no. Even better. It did, and I just didn't notice his insignias and all that mm -hmm. stuff. 
he immediately turned around and called me to him and he chastised me right there. I was going to say, he, uh, he... I didn't mean he beat on me or anything. No. But he, he chewed me out. And yeah. all I had to do was say, I'm sorry, sir, I did not see your insignias. <laughs> and that took care of the problem. So uh, just, just a mere apology. You know? Yes. And then I proceeded to salute you but, right there. say, you, 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 very, you very much remembered. Now, yes. now, I will ask this. Would he have shown you any lenience had you had an armful of something? Had you been carrying things? Would he have shown you lenience instead of well, by, by not being able to salute him in, there? In that case, uh, it is part of the rules that if we are occupied uh, and cannot salute, uh, then he would not have done anything. He would have understood that. Correct. But in in you not saluting him when you weren't occupied, he perceived an injustice. He perceived an insult. Oh, a total disrespect towards yes. him and a, his position. And something that there was a legitimate excuse for, you just simply didn't see. Yeah. Uh, you didn't understand his rank. So we often do this in our lives. We 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 think somebody slights us, somebody ignores us, um, I have this problem oftentimes with my wife. She has a, a constant ringing in her ears, which it still amazes me that she can sing and play the piano and do all the things that she can do. Um, but if I'm not looking directly at her, she's not looking directly at me, I oftentimes don't speak loud enough for her to hear me. Uh, so she has to read my lips. Even now, she's staring at me because she has to read my lips. And I'm, I've got a microphone and she's sitting next to the speaker. you just but th this is why we have the microphone and the speaker right now is because she needs to listen. But, but oftentimes that's perceived as, I can perceive that as she's just ignoring me. Um, and it, it's, it's absolutely not the case. She simply didn't hear me, didn't understand what I was saying, didn't know what I needed. But what about those who aren't in the military? I mean, Iowa is famous for the farmer's wave. Uh, when I was growing up, I thought Iowa was the most um, inviting, uh, what, what, is, what is the, um, welcoming, welcoming. I, I thought the farmers around were the most welcoming people in the world, because everywhere you drove, you'd see the farmer wave, mm -hmm. yeah. but, but how often do we uh, go up and down the street and, and we see somebody that we should know, I, I drove by uh, one of my uncles the other day, and uh, somebody who normally would wave at me and he didn't uh, and I immediately went oh I wonder what's wrong what's wrong with him you know what did I do but it wasn't he was just occupied he had somebody else in the vehicle he was occupied he didn't see me I was driving a vehicle he hadn't recognized before all of these things can happen the point is that Haman here has perceived an injustice now there is a legitimate. The king had made a command, and, and this was supposed to be uh, accomplished, that they were supposed to bow and do reverence for Haman. But he's taking this personally. And, and we, don't, we don't know how long it's been. We don't know. We know that it's, it's happened several times, but this... This brings him to wrath. And as we saw with Big Thin and Tirish, wrath, if we allow it to overtake our lives, destroys us. It causes uh, knee-jerk reactions that are, that are not, uh, they're good. They're often extremes. And, and Haman is no different. He allows his anger to go into an extreme. He's full of wrath and it clouded his judgment. 
He decided that Mordecai needed to die, and not only that he needed to die, but but that his whole people needed to die. <coughs> Excuse me. And I believe the reason that he went to this step, because as we said, this misstep by Mordecai was punishable by death. And Haman would have been completely justified at this point. But I believe that his wrath went to the extreme of going against all of the people of Mordecai because of his previous hatred for the Jews, because of his ancestral history with the Jews. And all of this, all of this issue, we're going to get into it in a little bit, but it goes back to the fact that the Jews didn't follow through on what God had told them to do. Haman was worried was not worried that he would be punished for, for choosing to kill one man. He, he, he just chose to go after the whole nation. This is an opportunity to destroy his enemies. And we see here in Mordecai, as, as he's been questioned and he's explained that, that he finally, for the first time in all of this, admits that he's a Jew. We've seen twice now that Mordecai has commanded Esther to not show her people. We understand, that as we've looked through it in the past, I firmly believe that Mordecai and Esther uh, did not go back to Jerusalem because they were living a life that they didn't want to give up. Because they were comfortable where they were in Shushan. Uh, if they were truly wanting to serve God, they would have gone back and served Him. And I want to end this lesson with this question. Is Mordecai here claiming his Jewish heritage legitimately or out of convenience? Is he claiming this Jewish heritage because he really, truly wants to love and serve God and do as God commands, or is he claiming it because he simply doesn't want to bow to Haman? And I think as we go through this, we can understand just where all of this lies. This is the first time, as we've said, that, that Mordecai acknowledges that he's a Jew. Up to now, he's re repeatedly hid and asked Esther to hide that her nationality. For this to come up now, it makes you think, is he revealing it because he legitimately loves God and, and is obeying the command to not bow down to any other other than God, or is it just because he didn't feel like bowing down to Haman? And I feel like this is more out of convenience. I feel like if Mordecai was truly wanting to serve God and, and love God the way that he, he should, he would have gone back to Jerusalem. He would have been involved in rebuilding the temple. He would have been anxious to get back to the promised land that God had given them because these kings over the past 50 or 60 years had been looked favorably on all of that. They had given the Jews freedom that they didn't give to anybody else. I feel like if Mordecai was truly wanting to claim his Jewish heritage, he would have been more like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. 
that he, he would have purposed in his heart from the very beginning. We know that Mordecai was taken captive when, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar took uh, captive, or captured Israel in the first place. I feel like he would have been right along with, with Daniel and saying, I, I don't want to defile myself with the king's portion. He would have stood up from the very beginning. Or he would have at least been like Joseph in following along and being forced to where he needed to be. Joseph was thrown into the pit. Then Joseph was sold into slavery and bought and put into Potiphar's house and then thrown into prison falsely and then finally raised up as second in command over all of Egypt. The difference is that we see Joseph seeking God and we see that God was with Joseph in every one of those steps. The Bible tells us specifically that God was with Joseph in every one of those steps. This is the first time that Jew has been mentioned and it's we still have not seen God mentioned in the book of Esther. I truly believe that this is out of convenience. Mordecai's playing the race card. We've all had experiences with that. I'm sure many of us have all done that ourselves. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I mean? What I mean to this community? What I mean to this area? Don't you know my position, my status? I feel like this is the point where Mordecai is. I feel like in his mind, he's saying, I'm in trouble, so I need an excuse. And God is my get-out-of-jail-free card. The problem is this. Not only has Mordecai put himself in jeopardy, but now his whole nation. He has brought on the wrath of Haman to destroy his whole nation. He's put those that are in Jerusalem doing the will of God, seeking to truly walk with God in danger simply because it's convenient for him not to have to bow to Haman. Second Kings. Let's go there for a second. Second Kings chapter 5. Second Kings chapter 5 is, uh, you might wonder, let me get all the way through it before you wonder where we're going with it, but is the story of Naaman. Second Kings chapter 5 and verse number 1, it says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had, notice, the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. The Lord is all capitalized. This is speaking of Jehovah God, the creator of the world, had given deliverance to Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and then brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. 
And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man to send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, pray I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariots and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. And Naaman was wroth. And went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar and the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Notice here his rage almost destroyed him. But his servant came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God and all his company, and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there then not, or sorry, shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules, burden of earth, for thy servant will henceforth Offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice nor unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And he said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. Naaman understood that there was a God in Israel, that he is the creator of all. But he also understood that he had a responsibility to his Lord. And he asked forgiveness in that he went into the house of Rimmon and when his Lord would bow down and pray to the false God and would ask Naaman to do the same, that Naaman would bow down, he asked the Lord's forgiveness. He sought the Lord's Forgiveness in this act. Naaman understood that God was a God of mercy. That that God wants worship more than obedience. We didn't go uh, and look at the time of Saul. But Samuel's question to Saul was, Hath God... Does God love sacrifice more than obedience? God loves obedience. (laughs) 
the other side of this, as Mordecai has finally revealed himself as a Jew, is that it might be that Mordecai wanted to bring attention to himself. This brings me to the Pharisees in the Gospels, that Christ often rebuked for making large open prayers in the markets and making a spectacle of serving God. Now, in my notes here, I have a small G on God because they're not serving God. They're not serving the Lord. They are serving a false God that they've created. They're serving themselves. But my question for you is this. Do those around you know that you are a child of the King? And if they do, is it because you live that life and serve Him with everything you have and are, or is it for another reason? We went to uh, the funeral yesterday for Mary Schindel. Uh, the church today is celebrating their 60th anniversary. Mary was a founding member of Fellowship Baptist Church. Mary served in that church for 50 years, teaching Sunday school. <clears throat> and while I had very little interaction with her, I knew from the very beginning that she loved the Lord, that she served God. I saw something in her life that everything she did was for the Lord. That's the life that the world needs to see. That's the life that this community needs to see in us. That's the life that is going to change this community, that is going to change this county, this state, this nation, and this world if we can finally live it. A life lived for God for any other reason than gratitude and love for Him is the wrong answer. Here, Mordecai is making a wrong choice. And he's putting his entire nation in danger. If we don't live our life for God because we love him and want to serve him, we're putting our families in danger. So many good, solid Christian people have had children that go the other way. Now, I, I don't, I try not to talk much about pop culture. Uh, and this man is <clears throat> probably has, has been out of uh, the limelight for a long time, but there's a man named Marilyn Manson. The thing about Marilyn Manson that many people don't know is that his dad was a Baptist preacher. His dad would have believed much the same that we do. Yet, apparently, his son didn't see in his life a true love for God because he went on to serve Satan. Mordecai, Mordecai is at fault here. Everything that's going to come, everything that the Jews, that, that Mordecai and the, the, the Jews of Shushan the palace and, and Esther and, and her ladies in waiting, everything that they're going to have to do to try and save the Jews is because of this decision right here. A decision that should have been made when he was taken captive with Nebuchadnezzar 
if he had stood on all of that, stood on God's word from the beginning, then he, like Daniel, he, like Joseph, could have said, God is with me and God is going to protect me. But at least he's chosen to make a stand. I have a little note written on the bottom of my page that a backsliding Jew draws a line in the sand and I'm comparing him to Lot. Lot, we know, was a righteous man. And Lot had to be dragged out of Sodom and Gomorrah by the angels before the city was destroyed. Lot lost his whole family because he wouldn't draw a line. Mordecai finally, whether it's out of convenience or it's legitimate, is drawing a line in the sand and he's going to stand up and say, I'm a Jew. It doesn't matter what we've done in the past. It matters what we do today. If you have not come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior... You're putting your family in jeopardy. If you've not served God as your Savior the way that He asks you to, with your whole heart, you're putting your family in jeopardy. But that doesn't have to be the end. You can make that decision today and God in His grace and mercy will answer those prayers. God in His grace and His mercy will change your life. Mordecai has drawn a line in the sand and we're going to see God's hand now begin to work. It's going to be very evident that God is working through His people. And it's glorious. It's glorious.